Now I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and please open it to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. Nathan read this earlier, so now we'll begin looking through this, asking the question, Lord, what would you have us do in light of the truth of your Word? So this morning as we think about this text, we think about it in terms of a reminder. One of the things I'm finding is that as I get older is I need more and more reminders. Post-it notes, alarms on the phone, and I think that's true for a lot of people. We're busy. We have a lot on our minds. So we make use of lists, post-it notes, and we set reminders. One of the oddest apps that I came across to serve as a reminder is an app called we croak. Now, it's not an app dealing with frogs at all. It's an app that when you download it, it will send you a reminder five times every day that you will die. If you get this app, it will remind you five times of a day with messages like this. Don't forget, you're going to die. The grave has no sunny corners. Those who are afraid of death will carry it on their shoulders. Now, the basic idea of this app is that if people are reminded of their own mortality, then they'll stop and smell the roses a little bit more, enjoy life, reevaluate their priorities. Well, we may not want to be reminded of our own mortality. In fact, we're reminded of that more and more every day. But we do need to be reminded about the gospel. We consistently need reminders about the grace of God. We need to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us in the cross and the resurrection. And we need to be reminded of what He calls us to do as followers of Him. Now, we need these reminders, not that we have some sort of spiritual amnesia about who Jesus is. To the contrary. We need these reminders because we get so busy with life, so consumed with our own activities and agendas that we forget that we are called to follow Christ, that His agenda must be our agenda. We need these reminders because we are prone to veer off course. As followers of Jesus, we are redeemed in spirit, but we still dwell in these bodies that are prone to sin. Because of that, we are often like sailboats on the sea without a sail. We are just pushed about by the currents of our own temptations and the currents of this world. So we need to be reminded that God has given us His Word and His Spirit to act as the power, the motor, as it were, that will cause us to fight against those currents that push us toward sin. And here at the very beginning of this passage, we see one of those reminders very clearly. Paul has reminded us time and time again through this letter to the Christians at Thessalonica that we are to love one another. That's the very first reminder found in verses 9 through 10. He begins by saying, now concerning, that signifies that he's moving to another topic. The previous verses, he dealt with holiness and sexual purity. Now, he's shifting gears to talk about God's will for us in relation to one another. And he refers to it as brotherly love, family love. We're reminded that part of our salvation is that we are adopted into the family of God. We are made His children. He has taken us from being children of wrath 
to being children of His grace, adopted into His family where He is our Father. And quite literally, Jesus becomes our big brother in the faith. And we are brothers and sisters in this as a family, working together, seeking for the glory of our Father. Now, I know that brings with it a whole lot of different images. I know family get-togethers can be, as Dickens said, the best of times and the worst of times. But it doesn't change the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul reminds us that we are to love one another because of that. It's very interesting the way that he does it. Look at verse 9. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you've been taught by God to love one another. What I find humorous is that Paul is reminding them to love one another, reminding us to love one another, without actually saying, I'm reminding you to love one another. It's kind of like the parent who looks at their child on a school morning and says, Hey, I know I don't need to tell you to take your lunch. Well, you just told them to take their lunch without telling them. In a way, that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, I don't need to remind you to love one another. Why? Because you have been taught by God. That phrase is unique. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it would be easy to read over that and thinking, well, of course, we're taught by God to love. But there's a little bit more in that phrase than we first realized because that phrase shows the fulfillment of a promise that God made in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 54, the, Isaiah, or the prophet Isaiah is speaking about the time the Messiah will come. And he will usher in peace in the kingdom of God. And one of the marks of the kingdom of God being brought to fruition is this. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great, peace, and great shall be the peace of your children. They'll be taught by the Lord. Now, obviously, Paul is referring to that here. But it's interesting to me also that Jesus quoted this Isaiah passage in John chapter 6. When Jesus said these words. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Now, it's curious, reading this, you wonder, how in the world does that Isaiah prophecy tie in to people being brought to Jesus? Well, it ties in this way, first of all. It's Jesus is showing that he is the fulfillment of that messianic promise in Isaiah 54 to bring in the kingdom of God. He's the Messiah who ushers in the kingdom. Furthermore, he is saying that the mark you are taught by God is this. You'll be brought to Jesus. Once again, see the connection. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 45, they will be taught by God. If we are being taught by God, it means that we are first and foremost coming to Jesus, recognizing who Jesus is. If a person says they have received some sort of revelation from God that is devoid of Jesus, they are not being taught by God. Jesus is very clear about this. And then notice verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Now I want you to understand that Jesus is showing us this cycle we enter into. To be taught by God means to be brought to Jesus. 
Once we are brought to Jesus, guess what? He has seen the Father and he reveals more of who the Father is. So it is God brings us to Jesus. Jesus reveals more of who God is, which brings us more and more back to Jesus. So when Paul says, you have been taught by God, he is saying, the Lord has sent the Messiah. You've been drawn to him and you are learning of God from him. Furthermore, Jesus echoed consistently what was taught in the Old Testament. When he is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said in John 13, I'm giving you this commandment. Love one another. Paul is saying you have heard it from Jesus. Now, we don't physically hear from Jesus. So how are we taught by God? Through the words of Jesus recorded in the Scripture, all of the Scripture as given to us by God through the apostolic witness. And guess what we are taught consistently? Love one another. If we are taught by God, we are seeking to do this. Now notice that the church at Thessalonica, is cons- can, they are, are given, given applause for doing this. And when I say that, notice Paul draws attention. You're doing this. To all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Now notice the scope of their love for one another. It's easy for us to become myopic and say, yeah, we're to love one another within this fellowship at Trinity. But understand the love for which they are committed stretches beyond a local congregation. Church, we are to love all brothers and sisters. Those who are confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. There are tangible ways that we can do this. We follow the example of this church as we seek to show love to other congregations in our area, our state, our nation, and our world. I was reminded a few years ago in 2002, a long time ago, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, we sent a mission team from this church to help rebuild St. Yeah, Rose Baptist Church outside of New Orleans. There are tangible ways we can minister to other congregations. And one of the ways that we may start doing this periodically within this church is on Sunday morning praying for our sister Baptist churches. We need to be reminded we're not in competition with one another. There's no shortage of people that need to know the Lord. And as we pray for one another, we are strengthening the body of Christ. We need to pray for the persecuted church, for believers around the world. If you go to the website of the International Mission Board, you will see churches worldwide that we can pray for. You can visit places like Voice of the Martyrs to read of the church being persecuted. Our family. If we take serious that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that is our family suffering at the hands of persecutors that we need to be praying for. Now notice what Paul says. Do this more and more. We urge you. Second time in chapter 4 is used urge. He emphasizes this. We urge you to do more and more. And I want us to remember this. Love is the one thing. The more you give it away, the more it will increase. Love increases as you give it away. Churches, we seek to love our brothers and sisters in this area, in this state, in this world, and in this congregation. What you will find is your capacity to love will grow remember having a conversation with my son-in-law and, and my daughter Ellen as she was still expecting our, our second grandchild. And she asked that question that most parents ask whenever they are getting ready to have their second or third child. How in the world can I love a child any more than the one that I've already got? 
And of course, our answer was, what you will find is your love will multiply. You will not love Kimball any less, but you'll find that your love for Alma will grow. And she has said that is so true. Church, as we seek to love, we will find that capacity for loving continuing to grow. So our first reminder is to love. But there's a second reminder that he gives us. Verse 11. We need to make it our goal to live life quietly. To live quietly. You could translate this also to say, make it your goal, your ambition to live quiet, peaceful lives. The stress of this day and age, I think all of us could say a hearty amen to that. When I read this, my mind went back to the book I read by Major Dick Winters, Beyond Band of Brothers, the war memoirs of Major Dick Winters. Band of Brothers chronicles the story of Easy Company, how they parachuted behind the lines on D-Day, June 6, 1944, for the invasion of Normandy. At that time, he was Lieutenant Winters, and he was a model of leadership. In that book, as he reflected upon his time in D-Day, he wrote these words. He said, Before I dozed off, I did not forget to get on my knees and thank God for help me, helping me to live through this day and to ask His help on D plus one. I would live this war one day at a time. And I promised myself that if I survived, I would find a small farm somewhere in the Pennsylvania countryside and spend the remainder of my life in quiet and peace. Wouldn't it be great to get done and through the drama of life? No strife, no quarreling. I mean, life is hard enough, isn't it, without the extra drama of life that seems to be often stirred up and churned up around us. And Paul is reminding us that as believers, our goal is to work for peace. Now, I understand that there are things that happen. And, and anytime you're in relationship with people, it seems like there's going to be drama. But our goal is to live peaceably. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote these words in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, you're not seeking just to stir up drama for the sake of drama. You're seeking what leads to peace. Now, how does that happen? Well, there's another command that is connected with that, uh, the command to live quietly. And that is found at the, in verse 11, to mind your own affairs. Not only are we to aspire to live quietly, but we are to mind our own affairs. Now, in other words, he is saying here, don't be a busybody who has to know what everyone else is doing. Now, if you've been following this message, these messages through 1 Thessalonians, there should be a, a question arising. What about all the commands you've spoken about, how we are to encourage one another, admonish one another, pray for one another, and be involved in one another's lives so that we can push one another on to follow Christ? How do these two mesh? This is simply an example where Satan can take a good thing and make it a bad thing. What Paul is referring to in verse 11 when he says to mind your own affairs, he is saying and referring to those people who want to know what's going on just so they're in the know. 
In other words, there's no desire to really pray for the other person. There's no desire to enter into life and to encourage, admonish, and exhort according to the Scripture. There's no real concern about saying, how are you doing spiritually? This is referring to the person who gets a sense of superiority and power from hearing the rumors and the gossip that is going on around. Paul is saying that should be no part of the believer's life. He's saying, don't be busybodies. He's not going back on his word to be involved, to encourage and admonish and strengthen one another. But he is saying, check your motivation. You see, there are areas of danger where we get into gossip and rumors. And we need to be very careful that we are seeking the truth. In fact, Augustine had a plaque that he had affixed to his table where he said this, that nothing negative should be said about anyone not present at the table. That you could only speak positive about someone that was not there. This is where we need to heed the admonition and the warnings about the tongue found in James. That we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. In many ways, it's like the, a movie. I've not seen it, but I've read the synopsis of it called A Quiet Place. The premise of the movie is that aliens have taken over the world and these aliens are attracted to sound. So people have to live in absolute silence or else the aliens will hear them and descend upon them and that's not pleasant. Our enemy is looking for any sound that seeks to puff up pride or tear down. That's why we need to be on guard. So understand there is a fine line that Paul is talking about here. Be involved in one another's lives for spiritual good humbly, meekly, as the song Charlie and Beth sang, seeking how we can truly love one another. But if our desire is simply to know, just for the sake of saying, bless their heart, don't need to know. This is difficult these days. Social media has made it very hard. That's where you need to monitor your heart. If you are engaged in social media, if looking at what other people write causes you to feel jealousy, discontentment, envy, that's a warning sign that you need to disengage from social media. You may say, but then I won't know what's going on. That may not be a bad thing. To guard your thinking. So please understand, Paul is giving a safeguard here. I'll say, reiterate it once more. Be involved for spiritual good, for prayer, for encouragement, admonition, but do not seek to know just to know, to have a sense of superiority or control. Now, there's a fourth warning, a fourth reminder that Paul gives. He says, work with your hands. Now, I know in many ways this seems odd, and it seems like why in the world would Paul have to say, work with your hands as we instructed you? And it's believed, and I tend to agree with this, that many believed the return of Jesus was imminent. In fact, next week we'll dive into verses 13 through 18 that talks about the return of Christ. So, because they believed that Jesus was about to return at any moment, they were selling their stuff, quitting their jobs, why do I need to keep working if Jesus is coming back? I'm going to be here with my brothers and sisters in Christ and we'll go home. 
And over time, as Jesus was not returning, they were becoming dependent upon other Christians who out of kindness was providing their needs. Now, this may seem far and removed from us today, but historically, this is something the church has faced. Let me give you an example. William Miller was a man who claimed to have insight in the prophetic timeline from God. Through his understanding of the Scripture and his calculations, he preached to his followers that Jesus was going to return on October 22nd of 1844. At that time, Jesus would descend and the followers of heaven of him would ascend up to heaven. They sold all their property. They woke up that morning, put on white robes, and sat and waited and waited and waited. At the end of the day, Miller said, obviously, I made some mistakes. Let's reconfigure things. They began referring to that as the great disappointment. He came back later with another revised date. I made a mistake. A year later, he's going to come, I believe it was in April of 1845. Once again, same thing. If they had jobs, they quit, they left. They began waiting again and waiting, and nothing happened. The second great disappointment. By the way, that was the birth of Seventh-day Adventism by William Miller. Now, once again, this seems far away from us because you have not and will not hear anyone from this pulpit saying, Jesus is returning in December, sell everything you have. You will hear that Jesus is coming back, but that's for next week. I'm not saying he's coming back next week. <laughs> I want to clarify. If he does, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But next week, we'll study the second coming of Christ. <laughs> Have I stuck my foot in my mouth enough to move on? So how do we apply this? I think the application is here. Paul is saying be a contributor. There are times where the church is commanded to help one another, and we should. We think of widows. You think of folks who have lost their jobs for whatever reason. And as I said earlier, we're family. We want to come alongside and help. But Paul is giving a warning to those who have become slackers and lazy and try to live off the church with the church supporting them. He's saying that's not to be the case. In fact, later on in one of the other epistles, Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. He's addressing the same problem of those who had quit their jobs thinking the return of Christ was imminent and the church was helping support them. And Paul is saying, you know, brother, if you fall down, we're there to help you up, but we're not there to continually carry you. If you can work, you need to work. So what he is saying here is, yes, there are times we all need to receive help. But the goal should be that we can be contributors to help those that are in need. That we should be working and living so that we can come alongside those who are struggling. That at times where we need to be recipients, we are there to receive. But our goal is to become those givers who can help. And Paul says there's a very real reason why we should do this. And the reason is found there in verse 12. Our witness to the world. He is saying the world is watching you. The world is aware Verse 12, so that, that's the purpose. Your walk will be done properly before outsiders and you're not dependent upon anyone. Apparently, the actions of those believers who are selling everything just to await the return of Christ were causing the unbelieving world to look at them and say, why are they not working? 
Paul is reminding us that our lives are to be like frames that surround the gospel and adorn it and make it beautiful. Church, we are to be reminded that God gives the world permission to look at us and to judge the veracity of our faith. That's why he is saying, live quietly, love one another, work with your hands, be, be seeking to contribute and not just take. Why? Peter addresses this in his letter. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of His visitation. So in other words, when the culture around begins slandering and bad-mouthing the church, playing us down, our lives speak in rebuttal against those accusations. Love one another. Seek to live peaceably, quietly. Let our words be encouraging. Mind our own affairs. Work with our hands. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me now, if you will.